building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. Just before we get into today's episode, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our weekly devotional group. Just text the two words, Promise Keepers, to 31996. Every week you'll receive a challenging devotional that will inspire you to put your faith into action in the real world. Again, text Promise Keepers to 31996. And now, here's today's show. So Fusco, I loved your book, man. I, co- I get stacks of books. People are constantly wanting me to endorse their book, promote their book, whatever. I get these books. And when your publisher, when Brett, Brett, Brett Benson sent me the book, he's like, would you would you look at this book? I'm like, okay, here we go. And another book. And I said, I'll, I'll give it an hour. Dude, your book is awesome. Your book has so much biblical insight. It is such an important book for people to read. And uh, this is coming from a guy that, you know, I'm cynical when it comes to books. I like books that were written a long time ago where people get right to the point. But dude, I mean, God gave you some serious insights into Matthew chapter five and the fruits of the spirit. So just start off just briefly, give, give, give us your, uh, your salvation story, how you came to Christ at Rutgers and then, and then launch into really what the book's about. Yeah. First, let me just say, Ken, thanks so much. I mean, you know, as an author, you, you know, God puts a message in your heart and he burns it into you. And then, you know, you go and you say, okay, I, I want to share this. I feel I'm supposed to share this. And so, you know, that's one part of the process, but to, to hear that it connects is always a, it's a huge thing because you know you obviously you want it to so thanks for for, for enjoying it and, and giving it an hour you know I realized that you know sometimes well, it gave like, it two it took me two to get you had an hour but you earned another hour so we're good <laughs> I read the whole book <laughs> but you know it's like when you when you write a book called Crazy Happy Nine Surprising Ways to Live the Truly Beautiful Life you you realize that like some people are just going to dismiss it out of hand it's it's like you're like oh not not a superficial book on a superficial topic you're like who's got time for that in 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 this cultural moment and so but i really wanted to 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 take the this idea and 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 give it a substantial biblical treatment, not just kind of the cultural treatment. So, but to back up with my story, so I, I grew up in in a huge all Italian family from New Jersey. So I always tell people whatever their uh, preconceived conception of all Italian folks from New York, that was my that is my family. You know, and for most people, they get it from uh, from cop shows or or from mob stories or whatever. And and that was just the family I grew up in. It was super loud, super loving. Um, but we were culturally Catholic. So, I, you know, so it, we never, we would go to church, but we never talked about like, Hey, what's a godly man like? And so like my parents were amazing. I have a twin sister and an older sister. We had aunts, uncles, and cousins, all characters. And, uh, it was, so, it was amazing. It was amazing. I was, I was smothered in love, kind of almost oppressive sometimes where everybody was <laughs> loud in your face. If they knew you had uh, a vulnerability, they would just press your buttons all day long, you know, until you cried or you stopped crying. And, and so, uh, you know, but as I was growing up, I, I, I was into sports and I really got into playing music. I'm a bass player an electric and an upright bass player. And, um, by the time I was in my early teenage years, I was your classic, you know, kind of wild kid. I did well in school, but I was playing in bands. I was partying like crazy. 
Then I, I, by the time I go to Rutgers uh, in my home state of New Jersey, uh, Rutgers University, now it's like all of the guardrails have been taken off. As long as I brought home grades, my parents were were fine with it, but uh, but there was just no parental oversight, and so all of my excesses became uh, exceedingly excessive, you know. And uh, as as is is apt to happen for somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who's going to college, and this is what college is supposed to be, you know. And in the midst of all of that, there was a series of things that went on that all uh, really uh, provoked my interest in uh, spirituality. So, so the first thing was, is that I started taking philosophy classes. Uh, and, and, and I never really thought about metaphysics at all, but I took a philosophy class and you're in college and I'm also partying a lot. So I kind of fancy myself of being a smart, high you know, thinker, you know, and so the metaphysics part of philosophy class got me. I took a religions of the Western world class at Rutgers with a reverend doctor who pretty much was just trying to tell people that Jesus, you know, wasn't important and he's a fabrication. So for me, given my contrarian nature, I was like, why are you trying so hard to tell people not to believe in Jesus? And, you know, mm. uh, me and you, we talked about music uh, earlier. And, and I always believe that the best musicians are the ones that either people love them or they don't like them. You know, it's like, it's like when, when everyone's in the middle of the road on someone, it's not special, but for those groups they are like, man, oh, I don't like, I love him. I hate him. And, and very quickly, I'm like, man, there's gotta be something to Jesus. If this guy is so working hard to get these college students to not believe in him. And I didn't believe in him in the first place. So that was happening. And then my mom got cancer and, uh, she got cancer when I was, um, she was diagnosed when I was nine, uh, 19. And, um, and then she, she fought valiantly, but she lost her battle to cancer when I was 21. So before my last year of college, and I had never been confronted with questions of, uh, eternity, you know, uh, what, you know, watching her pass away, you know, I remember after she passed away, I don't want to be too, you know, overly, uh, dramatic, but, you know, looking at her body and knowing that that was her body, but she wasn't there. And I didn't know what to do with like, like what just happened. And so all these things. And then I had a couple friends who had started to follow Jesus and were talking to me about Jesus. And, um, through a number of things like that, I found myself reading, uh, the red Gideon's Bible that my mom had taken home from the hospital that I had read to her before she passed away. She would have me read Psalm 23 and, John 14 as a way to comfort her in those really dark seasons in her in her journey with cancer. And I never read the Bible before. I never heard those passages, but I read them a lot to her because it, it helped her in some way. And so um, I, I took that Red Gideon's Bible with me and I started reading Matthew's gospel. And literally in my last semester of college in my apartment, um, having been kind of devastated by the loss of my mom, being in pretty deep in the throes of addiction, uh, I, you know, Jesus invaded my life and, uh, that's the, exactly what happened It's like, it wasn't through a church. I had, you know, some friends were talking to me about Jesus, but they were still struggling to get their lives with Jesus together. And, and I just, I just, Jesus met me in the midst of that. And, and I said yes to him. And I started, you know, I was, I graduated, I was, I moved to the West coast to, to pursue music. And, and, and in some ways being a baby Christian in the music scene is a bad scene, but for me, it was also like I, you know, um, Jesus was doing a work on my heart. And so I didn't have gigs or anything until the evening or even rehearsals. So like I would wake up in the morning and I would do, I would just read my Bible and I would pray and I would journal and, 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 and for, for hours, and then I would start practicing and stuff. And so really that's kind of the, the journey of, of me, uh, in faith and, and all that God has done since then is kind of built on that foundation. So you got saved just by reading the Bible. Yes. Wow. 
That's well, really, well, faith really comes cool. by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? And so, so in a lot of ways, it was like, I'm just reading Matthew's gospel. And what was really cool, to be honest, Ken, is that the Jesus that I read about and met in the scriptures was not the Jesus I had ever heard about. Like Jesus was so much cooler in the Bible than what I had heard about. Like, it was like, he would say the most insane things. And when you're coming at it with a blank slate, really, and you, and you hear the way he's like, there's like, man, there's, there's people in power and Jesus is speaking truth to power and they're getting mad. And, and like, there's all these things. And Jesus is like saying the most absurd, like at the time, like, I'm like, this is crazy. Like, how is this guy, how is this guy the most well-known person in history? And this is the stuff that he's saying. And I was literally just like, because I had a, a bent towards pondering and thinking about things. And, you know, I would, he'd say, Jesus would say things and I would be like, I can't believe he just said that. Like, mm-hmm. why did he say that? You know, like I remember the first time I read, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? And, and, and this is being read by a guy who was in the process of gaining the whole world, you know, and like, it's like kind of growing up, I'm in college, you know, I'm decent, I'm doing well in school, you know, I can go in all these different directions, I'm going to go do music, I'm a pretty decent musician, you know, I have all these things going on, but I'm like, and I remember just being stopped in my tracks, like, I never even thought about this. Like, like, so how, how do you lose your soul? What is your soul? Like, I don't even know what these concepts are, you know? And so for me, it was all like, Jesus was just so provocative. So like, he was ama- amazing. And, and like, you just watch you watch you to move through all these situations and telling these incredibly deep, but simple stories that we call parables. Like, I just think, you know, I, what I've found is that people are interested in Jesus but like they're really not interested in like the pasteurized like cultural Jesus or even mm. sometimes the Jesus of church. And I love the church and I'm a pastor of an amazing church called Crossroads in Vancouver, Washington. But like the real Jesus is really, really, really fascinating for everybody. So that goes with a quote that I, one of the quotes I loved in your book. And you say, Western society has a problem with the real Jesus. And I think you answered the question before I asked it, but I love that statement because it's true. I, I, I often say that People don't really worship Jesus. They worship an idol called Jesus. Yeah. And I mean, and I, I, I'm just going to steal that quote. I really like that. It's like, <laughs> that's, that's a really great way to say, to say it because I think what's gone on is that like, listen, because Jesus is Jesus, right? Like no matter where someone is on their faith journey today, everybody has to include Jesus in the story in some way. So everybody has tried to co-op Jesus into everything as long as people have known about Jesus. So it's like, you know, you read church history and you have like Jesus as the head of the Holy Roman Empire, you know, and then you have the Jesus in every political discussion of in every culture for 2000 years. And we have the Jesus mm-hmm. of like the, the, the more conservative version of Jesus, the more, you know, a liberal version of Jesus today. So everyone has like a Jesus place. And the thing is like, like, that's what people do. I think it was a Nietzsche who said, God created us in, his image. And we've been returning the favor ever since. So, Mm -hmm. so like, so we end up having this idea that like everybody wants Jesus on their side, doing what they think is right. And then I'm like, and that's great that we do that, but really Jesus is who Jesus is. And actually Jesus isn't inviting us to remake him in our image. He's like, actually the whole point of transformation as it relates to the Bible, God's plan is that God remakes us in Jesus's image, that, that we become more like Jesus, not Jesus becoming more like us. And so I'm always constantly in my own walk with Jesus. And, and as a pastor and as an author, I'm always trying to encourage people to like, let's not 
make Jesus more palatable to who we are. Let's let Jesus transform us so that we are more the fragrance of Christ, more a part of the kingdom of God, as opposed to trying to fit Jesus into the ideas that we have today. And, and that, that gets me in trouble from every angle because nobody actually likes it when Jesus calls our garbage into question. So I want to get into your book specifically after the break. So I want to ask you about a few quotes now that'll kind of lead us into the book. You got a lot of really great quotes in it, but one of them is, we love the outcome, but God loves the process. Uh, that's a great quote. What does that mean? Well, well, so here's what I see in my own life and, and everybody I know, it's like, we just want to get to the end of this thing. So like, let me give you an example. Like, you know, recent cultural history, you have a global pandemic, you know, 2020, right? You have a global pandemic and then you have, everyone has their feelings about that. And then you have very, uh, you know, a very divisive politics going on. You have social unrest, you have all these things going on. And, and it's very common to say, I actually just want to get to the end of this. Like, let, let's get to the point when life can go back to normal, which is not a bad thought at all. So we want to get to the end of a thing. But what really God is interested in is the person that we're becoming day in and day out as we go through it. So like, I, I'm always having to remind myself that like, God loves the process because it's not about just getting to the finish line. It's about the person we are becoming as we're on the journey. And, and no matter where someone is, like I realize, like if, if someone's listening to this right now and they're like, Hey man, man, I, I'm in my late six, my late fifties. I'm like, man, listen, you're just in the middle chapters. you got a long mm -hmm. way to go. Like, it, it's not like your growth is over, you know? And for me, I'm 45. And so it's like, I realize I'm in the middle chapters too. And, and, and I have kids, you know, I was talking to my 16 year old son who's, who, who's a man and he's becoming a man. And I'm like, man, you're at the, you're in like the first Stay, you're in the first set of chapters of life, but who you are becoming every single day is what God is interested in. And who you're becoming will actually lead to the outcomes, whatever they look like. And I'm like, so I'm like, you know, character is built every single day. Christ likeness is built every single day, as well as hard heartedness and bitterness, mm. uh, anger. Like these are things that we build every day. And so if we get so focused on the outcome, then we actually miss the work that God wants to do in the here and now in our lives that will actually lead us to an outcome, whether it's God's preferred outcome or whether it's us landing in a place where we really don't want to land. And I think for all of us, we look at our lives and there's been times when you're like, I wish I had handled that differently because it actually moved the outcome to a, a place that I actually didn't want it to be. I've told this story a couple of times. I don't think ever on this podcast, but when I was a copper in L.A., uh, we used to go to this cop bar, and you had to be an L.A. cop to get into the bar. Nobody else was allowed in. And everybody on Rampart Morning Watch, they used to call us gunfighters because of all the gunfights that we got into. Everybody there drove Harleys except for this rookie. Rookie drove a ninja. And so we would line up at the bar, and this old salty cop, Joe Ramirez, who would sit on one end of the bar, and you never sat in his seat. He sits there with his beer in his hand. It's like 8 o'clock in the morning because it was quitting time for us. Sitting there, the kid down at the other end of the bar yells down. We would yell insults to each other, as cops do. And he yells down, hey, Joe, I don't know why you drive that Harley. It takes you too long, too long to get you where you want to go. And Ramirez grabs his beer and takes a big swig out of his beer, puts it down, never even that, looks at the kid. He goes, boy, when I'm on my Harley, I am where I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> And no. I've tried to remember that in life right there. Well, I mean, now, isn't that a, 
like some great wisdom because mm-hmm. like if all you're trying to do is get to point B, then yeah, let's get there as fast as possible or, or let's, it doesn't matter, you know, but it's like, if you realize like, like this guy realized that like, actually really where I want to be is on the Harley. Like it's not about getting there as fast as possible. And I think if we can, you know, if we can grab hold of that and bring that into every day, you're like, oh, listen, God is present now. I mean, you know, Jesus at the end of Matthew 28, you know, at the end of, you know, the great commission, you know, where he says, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Like, that's like a super amazing promise that like in the midst of all the garbage, he's like, I'm with you right there. Like I'm at street level where you're living right now. And I think what we do is we have a tendency, especially when things are rough, when there's tragedy and trauma and pain and hurt, which is, it's everywhere. It's just a matter, and everybody has it. It's just a matter of what does it look like for you in this moment, you know, when you, we have a tendency to divorce Jesus from that, but, Mm -hmm. but really Jesus is like, I'm here right now. And I actually, I want to leverage all this stuff to, 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 to do the work. So I think about you as like an LA cop, you know, you know, and it's like, like, as you went through all the different things that you went through, it's like every single day, if you weren't careful, right. You and, 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 and your brothers and sisters, you know, in blue who are, who are serving that community, if you're not tending to your own heart in the midst of it, obviously it's so easy to, the heart gets hard. You become callous to all of it. And you know that like at the end, the, the destination of that, the outcome of that is actually no matter how successful, successful you've been in your job, Coming at the end with a hard heart, it's it, it's it's not what Jesus would have for you, right? Like he wants to he wants to soften heart, and and some of it is like, man, this is occupational hazard. You know, when when I get to talk with law enforcement, I'm always like, so how are you doing keeping your heart open when so much of what you see is hard, tragic, broken? You know, and 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 I love like for for men and women in law enforcement and in public service. You know, I'm like, man, I'm praying for you. I, like, I, what you see every day, I I don't know how you do it, but I do know that Jesus is real and He is with you in the midst of that. I want to ask you about my favorite quote in the book, and then we'll take a break and come back and get into the book because because this is really important stuff. You said, if we grab hold of the sufficiency of Jesus, it transforms our insecurities into invitations. That is really awesome. Oh what man! What does that mean? Well, well, so so often, you know, we in the way we look at the world, we're driven by what we see our lacks are. You know, like oh, I could never do that because of this and this and this. And and I think what you end up doing then is you end up living your life based on what you think is possible with the resources that you have. Right. But really what Jesus invites people into everyone who's listening to this right now, it's like Jesus is inviting you into something bigger, something greater. The Bible uses words like, you know, God will do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. And you think about exceedingly abundantly above what we can fathom. It's like the spirit is inspiring the apostle Paul to, to write words that are like, it's, he's grasping at like infinite con concepts in a way that a human can understand it. And so really what it is, is that Jesus doesn't invite us to live lives that are safe and that, that land at the limits of what we can fathom. He's inviting us into something greater. And so it's about, are we going to focus on our insufficiency or Jesus's sufficiency that Jesus is more than enough that 
who God is for us in Christ, what Jesus has done by the way he's lived, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection. I remember as a, as a first-time reader of the Bible, I'm like, man, if Jesus is really alive, then all bets are off. Like, like, like anything mm-hmm. that I can fathom is, is, is like, I haven't even thought about it yet. If Jesus can walk out of the grave, you know, like this changes everything. When that happens, now all of a sudden you realize that everything you you come up against, God is always going to invite you beyond what you feel comfortable with. That's what a step of faith is all about. God's like, I'm going to do something that you are not ready for, that you wouldn't choose on your own, but I want to do it. And then when I bump up against where I feel like, man, I am inadequate for this, faith says Jesus is more than sufficient for this. So I'm going to trust and I'm going to take a step. And one of the best examples of this is that crazy story in the Bible where Jesus's disciples are in the boat and Jesus will stay behind. And there's this big storm that comes on up. And then Jesus is walking on the Sea of Galilee and he walks to them, right? And then as they get close, to, the disciples get freaked out. Obviously, there's somebody not in the boat who's walking on the water. And Jesus is like, hey, it's me. And Peter's like, well, if it's really you, Lord, I want to walk on the water too. Now, Peter gets a lot of, gets in a lot of trouble in the Bible. He's got a big mouth. I'm always grateful that God called him because I got a big mouth. And, you know, God Peter, uses Peter was him. the Italian disciple. He was impetuous, <laughs> man. Like Peter's a, a shoot ready aim kind of a guy. You know what I mean? Like he, he's like everything that Peter does. It's like, he doesn't even think about it. He just reacts. And then it's kind of a calamity, but like, he's the only one who's like, well, if you're, if it's really you, Jesus, then I want to walk on the water too. Like he's the only disciple whoever walked on water and he steps out of the boat, you know? And what's amazing in that story, he steps out, he's walking on the water. And then it says he noticed the storm and he began to sink. So like in that moment, Peter began by trusting in Jesus and he was able to do, God was doing an amazing work, but then he remembered who he was and where he was. And he got focused on his own limitations. And he immediately said, now what's so cool about the story, of course, is Jesus grabs him doesn't let him drown. And it's like, I always wonder, like, what was the dis- discussion among the disciples after this? Like, once they get to land, everything's fine. Like, are they like, yo, Peter, how was it drowning out there? Or was Peter like, no, no, yeah, I did sink, but I did walk on water and Jesus saved me. In the, like, so, like, you don't know what the story was of it, but you realize right, you realize right there that, like, when we get to the end of what we feel comfortable with, and if God is doing a work of inviting us beyond that, that's an invitation from Jesus to be like, look, I want to prove to you who I am, and I want to show you what I want to do. Will you be a part of it? And I'm, I, I feel like what's one of my goals in life is to always say yes to the invitations of Jesus and try and encourage everybody else that when Jesus invites you, the only proper RSVP is yes, because he's the Lord. It's like, if you say no Lord, he's not the Lord. And so I believe that no matter where someone who's listening to this is, is on their faith journey, Jesus is inviting all of us to take fresh steps of faith, whether it's for the very first time or whether it's for the 20 million time, but it, he's always inviting us. And I think that the only proper response to an invitation from Jesus is yes, Lord. When we come back from this little break, you say happiness doesn't just happen. And boy, we've been fighting against the promise keepers, passivity and men that you got to take a hold of life. You got to be proactive. You got to go make it happen. And happiness is not just going to happen. And you have come across, I think, some real, the, the gem of scripture about why happiness doesn't just happen and what we do to actually be happy and joyful people. And so I'm going to grab the other side of this break. 
Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized, innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. Promise Keepers is back, and we're relaunching the stadium events that brought millions of men to Christ. Join us this July at AT&T Stadium in Dallas, Texas, for a men's conference like no other. Strengthen your soul with unforgettable worship led by top Christian artists. Form friendships with brothers in Christ that last a lifetime, and discover new tools and strategies that will empower you to follow Jesus more faithfully. Be sure to get your tickets before they sell out or find a simulcast location near you. Visit www.promisekeepersevent.com for the latest information. We'll see you this summer. So talking to Daniel Fusco, and I love this book. And I, I really, as you guys know, I don't endorse a lot of books. This is really, really, really good. Despite the little fluffy title that looks like it's for girls, and despite his uh, dreadlocks, he actually is pretty cool. <laughs> hey, Fusco, who, who's your favorite bass player? Oh, that's a or great. Or give me a top few if you have to. Okay, so uh, so my my so if I'm talking about the uh, the upright bass, you know, uh, my favorite bass player would either be Scott LaFaro from the famous Bill Evans Trio or. Uh, um, Gary Peacock, who's, you know, been on seminal albums since the, the, mm -hmm. the, you know, the fifties really amazing uh, bass player. Yeah. Amazing. J just passed away, um, just recently as well. Um, uh, if we're talking electric bass, then, um, you know, um, if we're talking, uh, of the, of the classic, uh, the classic rock bass players, uh, John Paul Jones is, is right there for me. Love uh, Zeppelin. Had the, had the whole thing. Uh, if you're talking about kind of more contemporary, uh, electric bass. I really liked uh, a guy named Scott Tunez, who was actually the bass player with Frank Zappa for a while. Oh uh, yeah, he was at, great in the eighties. Uh, a really, really great bass player. And um, you know, con contemporarily, I mean, because of jazz is also. I mean, you, you can't do anything without talking about Jaco Pastorius. You know, Stanley Clark. You know, th these guys are all just uh, so so amazing. And and someone I've been really enjoying a lot, uh, an electric bass player who's. Uh, Who's newer is this guy? He's not really new, but if you know bass players, this guy Hadrian Farood, who who you know people found out he started playing with Chick Corea uh, when he was a young man. He was like nineteen, and he's just you know so funky. He's got such facility, real lyrical as well. So I really enjoy him. Nice. Well, I'm going with Chris Squire from Yes, but uh, that that's not exactly temporary. All right. So happiness doesn't just happen. Tell us about how you went to Lake Tahoe. And God really spoke to you about the Beatitudes because it's such an important part of Scripture. What does that mean to guys listening to this who are going, I want to be happy, man. What, how do I become crazy happy? So, okay. So it, it's important to realize that everybody wants to be happy, right? And, and like there's a reason McDonald's never sold a sad meal. 
you know, it's like, it's like, cause it's like, everybody wants to be happy. And, and so, so, and I think that's a good thing, you know, because the alternative is I just want to be miserable or I, I want to be unhappy. And, and if, if you're talking to a buddy, you know, having a cup of coffee, like, man, all I want to do is be really miserable. You'd be like, Hey, that's not really good. Like, like, like you wouldn't just let that pass. If you're a friend, you're gonna be like, Hey, so hold on. What's up with that? Like, if you only got one shot at today, you know, might as well make it a day that has some joy in it. Right. And so everyone's looking for happiness and our, and our culture really sells like happiness and happenings. You know what I mean? Like you get married, you have kids, you get a job, the kids move out, you know, you get some toys, you know, you entertain yourself some, you know, and, and we end up living what I call on the, on the hamster wheel of happiness seeking. We're always looking for the next thing that's going to make us happy. And, and if you've been around at all, we've all done that. We've all found, done all these different things and maybe they give us, you know, happiness for a moment, you know, mm. but, but they don't really fulfill us. And so for me, uh, I, I was going through a really, uh, amazing, be- a beautifully amazing season of ministry. Like I said earlier, I pastor a great church in Vancouver, Washington, just over, you know, you know, over the Columbia River from Portland, Oregon. And, uh, God was doing a, and has been doing amazing things in the church. And, I, and, and, a, and a previous book had been released and everything was going great. But I found myself really, I like to use the word crispy. I just put myself like brittle. And it was coming up time for family vacation where we kind of, the kids are done with school and we, we, we take a road trip and get a couple of, you know, like 10 days away to kind of reset and reconnect after school's out and after a busy season of ministry. And I was really skidding into vacation. Everything was like, I, I had everything I was hoping for, you know, my, my beautiful bride, love my kids, you know, feel fulfilled in my calling as a pastor book had just come out. All these things were really rocking, but I was, I found myself to be crispy. I was unhappy and I didn't know what was going on. And I remember, you know, normally I'm one of those people who, if I'm going away, I'm like, I I have a goal. Like, Hey, I'm going to read these books in the Bible. I'm going to bring this other book that I'm going to read. I'm going to journal. Like I'm one of those type of people. I like to kind of get at stuff, you know, uh, like be proactive and, 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 and make sure I'm growing. But I was so crispy that I actually didn't even want, I'm like, I just need to soak in the Bible. Like I, and not just like read a lot. I just need to soak in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter five. I didn't know why I wanted to do it, but I was like, I, like, I, I, I couldn't even handle the thought of like trying to read a book, like, or even read a whole book of the Bible. I'm like, I just I've need like, yeah. I, just, I, I just need to rest and soak. And so I, I just took the Beatitudes and, and I remember I sat down and in my journal, I just wrote all the, the, the nine Beatitudes, you know, some people said there's eight because the last two kind of go together, but there's nine of them. So, I, and I just was journaling, memorizing them, chewing on them, thinking about them, you know, and, and really quickly, I was kind of taken by the fact that I, I had always known it, but the word blessed, you know, blessed of the poor in spirit or you know, blessed for those who mourn or you blessed for the meek, that word blessed in the Greek makarios literally means can be translated. Oh, how happy, you know, and modern translations use that. Like the blessed person is the happy person, you know, and there's old Testament scriptures. Like it says in uh, Psalm 144, 15, you know, uh, happy are the people whose God is the Lord, you know, blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. There's all these scriptures. So the blessed person is the happy person, you know? And, and, and so I'm like, okay, so Jesus is talking about happiness. And I'm like reading all these different definitions of, of the characteristics of the happy person. And I'm like, I never think about happiness like this. Like, I'm like, I got my wife, I got my kids, I got my job, you know, God's doing a work. I'm an author. I'm like, none of these things are in Jesus's discussion of 
happiness. And what was cool is about four or five days into it, I'm really having these amazing revelations about like, wow, Jesus's most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, begins with maybe the most famous teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes. And the most famous person who I believe is Lord and Savior, God in flesh, the Son of God, like, like his first sermon is about happiness and I'm unhappy. And I'm like, I never really thought about it through this lens. But then my ADD <laughs> kicked in and, and I was thinking like at the fourth or fifth day of doing this. And I'm like, hey, wait, isn't there nine fruit of the spirit as well? She's nine beatitudes. So I kind of flipped over to Galatians chapter five and, and I'm like, oh yeah, there's nine fruit of the spirit. And so I went to my journal. I wrote the first beatitude with the first fruit of the spirit. I just lined them up. And then I started journaling, having kind of put them both together. What was amazing was, is I realized very quickly that there's something special here. Because if you read, you know, the, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, you know, long suffering, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Well, you know, everybody, if you ask somebody like a happy person has those characteristics to their life. But I'm like, nobody talks about the Beatitudes as Jesus being like, hey, the person who's in Christ is true, is really happy. And you put it all together and it made this amazing context to explore. I call it crazy happy because it's, it's not just like you're so happy, you're crazy happy. It's really <laughs> God's plan for happiness is found in surprising places, unexpected places. Like, like nobody ever said, Hey, you want to be happy? You need to get humble. But that's what Jesus did. Like the very first beatitude. Oh, how happy is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's like no, but like the, all of the self-help books on happiness, and there are a lot of them, none of them talk about humility, but Jesus starts there. And I'm like, well, that's a crazy thought now, isn't it? Like, like, so if I'm like, if I'm unhappy, my next question, having done this study, written this book is, okay, where am I not being humble right now? Because if humility is the entry point for happiness, then pride is the enemy of happiness. And if there's one thing I know a lot about, it's being proud. I've been proud my whole life. No one taught me how to do it. We just get self-centered. We, we, we get obsessed with ourselves and what we want. And, and not that those things are necessarily bad, but when your focus is on yourself, like the center of pride is the letter I. Like the, with, when the self is the center, there is no happiness. And that's what our culture is doing. The reason our culture is so unhappy is because our culture is driven by the the, the the individual, the self is the most important thing. And Jesus teaches the exact opposite of that. And so we, it's not surprising that our culture is unhappy. And it's not surprising that for many of us, we're unhappy just like our culture because we spend our whole life looking at happiness through like, it's about me. And Jesus actually talked about happiness and he turned all this stuff on his head. So literally that's like how I ended up with this this amazing concept of crazy happy, the nine surprising ways to live the truly beautiful life. You know, it's funny. I've been dealing with lately before I read your book, but the blessed are those who mourn part. Cause I used to wonder about that. I said, Lord, I mean, but now I get when you mature in Christ enough, you, you actually, you're in a mournful state a lot at the sin of the world, at the self-imposed misery. You see people who are so gosh, racked with sin and sickness and, and bitterness and anger, and they don't have to be, and you just mourn where they're at. But the mourning does come with a joy at the same time because you realize God's rescued me from that, but uh, but uh, I, I need to go help other, I need to rescue them from that too. And so I, 
the last several months, I've been really realizing what blessed are those who mourn means. So I guess I'm at beatitude number two. I got seven more to go before I grow up, but I'm at number two at least in a good place. Well, and it's so good because if you think about our cultural definition of happiness, like most of us think, well, I'll be happy when I'm not sad. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like it's like right. happiness is the absence of sadness. And Jesus is like, actually, no. Oh, how happy as the person who mourns. Now, what I think is powerful, and you said it just right on, it's like the reason we 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 grieve and mourn is is not only the brokenness of the world, but also our own brokenness, our own mistakes. You know, the the the, the Bible calls it sinfulness. Our word calls it brokenness or woundedness. But you know, we always try and you know, our culture tries to kind of skirt around the biblical words. And I always say, well, yeah, those words in the Bible is this word. You know, and and so like you know, my own sinfulness should break my heart because it breaks God's heart and it broke Jesus on the cross, right? And so so we mourn because of those things. And in a lot of ways, what you realize is Jesus wants to incorporate a biblical view of sadness into what real happiness is. And if you think about it, the shortest verse in the Bible is in John chapter 11, where it says Jesus wept. Now, why did, why, why did Jesus grieve? Well, because Lazarus had died. And if you read the whole story in John chapter 11, they called for Jesus because Lazarus was sick. Jesus intentionally delayed because, you know, he, he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead and God was going to be glorified because of it. And when Jesus shows up, Lazarus is already dead and everybody is mourning and grieving. And then Jesus starts to weep alongside them. So Jesus is seeing the grief that comes from death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, right? But he also knows that he's the great redeemer. And, and the Bible says we should weep with those who weep. And so Jesus embodied this idea that like actually biblical happiness involves grief. But it's not just grief. And you said it so well that like, you know, oh, how happy. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Right. So God meets our sadness with the comfort of the spirit. And if you tie it together with the second fruit of the spirit, the second characteristic is joy. And there's that great verse in the, in the book of Psalms that says, though the sorrow may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. And so what we realize is that our grieving is real and God isn't inviting us to not grieve. He's inviting us to grieve knowing that he wants to bring comfort. And when, when God comforts mm -hmm. us in our grief, then joy is produced. And if you tie it to another great scripture, second Corinthians chapter one, the apostle Paul says that we comfort others with the comfort that we've received. So what happens is like when you go through a series of grief, like when I lost my mom, I was grieving. When I came to know Jesus, over time, Jesus brought me tremendous comfort, even though I miss my mom, you know, it's like brought me comfort. And when someone is going through losing a loved one, I'm a great person to come alongside them because I've been there and not that I have the answers. I just know how God has worked in my life in the midst of it. And what's beautiful is the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20 quotes Jesus when he says, you're more blessed, you're happier when you give than when you receive. So all of a sudden, God redeems the things that break our hearts because we now comfort others with the way he's comforted us. And now all of a sudden, our the things that were tests for us become testimonies, and we're using what God has done in our life to bless other people, and we're actually happy because we're able to help them. And so you realize like, like Jesus completes this whole cycle in one beatitude. And these are kind of the things that we, I explore in the book, like each one of the beatitudes and linked to a fruit of the spirit creates this 
this environment of which like you're now exploring the scriptures, who Jesus is and how God wants to give us a new way of looking at happiness. And so now I realize when something breaks my heart and pretty much every day, something happens in our world because we're, we're aware of everything that's going on everywhere in the world with technology, something breaks my heart every day. And I don't think to myself, I, I shouldn't feel this way or this. Now I'm not happy. I'm like, Oh, God wants to do a work of comforting me in the grief of what I see in the world and in my own life. And as he comforts me, joy is going to be produced. And that as he's comforted me and joy is produced, he's going to give me opportunities to minister to other people. And again, he brings me from where I am to him and then outside of myself into the world as his hands and feet. And now all of a sudden, like, we're just talking good old fashioned Bible. What does God do in someone's life and how does God use them? You know, it's funny, the story of Lazarus that hit me when you were talking about it that I never thought about before, but Lazarus was sick to the point of dying, which has got to really suck. I mean, you've got to be pretty miserable, right? Jesus lets him suffer. He waits while, while Lazarus does that. And yet, you think of the payoff and the blessing. Lazarus was the guy that was in the grave for four days. And everyone was coming to see him afterwards and giving credibility to his words. Like, what was it like to be dead for four days? Um, right? And so you think of all the blessing that came from that. But the beginning of the blessing was Lazarus had to sit there and suffer for a while. And we always think, well, happiness will come when I don't have to suffer. But frankly, that's a... The problem with America today is we think the whole goal is to get to death safely, right? So um, I want to hurry up and retire, um, wear my knee-high dress socks with my sandals and sit on my porch in Florida somewhere, you know, making sure that I'm the first in line at the Golden Corral when it opens at four o'clock. Man, that ain't happiness. And growth doesn't happen anymore. And I know more guys that have retired and then they stunt. And the guys that, the guy that I know 10 years in retirement is not the great man that I knew when he retired. He's now festering and stale, right? So, so much of learning and growth comes from pain. That's right. And I, I think that for each one of us, what we have to come to terms with is that, you know, as long as there is breath in our lungs, God's got a purpose for that. You know, like, like I think about, you know, uh, men in retirement, you know, and I have a great example of the founding pastor of Crossroads, Dr. Bill Ritchie, who, who uh, brought me in as his, his successor, uh, when he was in his late sixties, he had, you know, he'd been pastoring the church for 40 years, you know, and like he has taken this, th I've been the lead pastor now for uh, eight years and uh, pastor Bill is still getting that life pouring into people. And he said, he's like, you know what the beauty of retirement is, Daniel? I'm like, what? He's like, now, you know, I can choose what I want to do with my time. And, and because of, you know, retirement, social security, all these things, it's like, you know, I, I, I have the resources to do it. I don't have to work. But he's like, but right as somebody forgets that they're the hands and feet of Jesus and God wants to use them, then you end up wasting. Mm -hmm. You're as smart as you've ever been. You've had the most experiences that you've ever had. You have more discretionary time than you've ever had. And God doesn't want us to waste that. He's like, God wants us to invest that. And I watched, I, I was talking to Pastor Bill just the other day and he's like, Daniel, I am busier now that I was when I was pastoring Crossroads. I have more mm. people that I get to touch their lives. And it's like, you know, maybe it's for some guys who are out there right now, I'm just a young whippersnapper. And I, you know, I know you've been farther down the road, but I want to encourage you, man. God wants to use you. God, God, God's put you in a place right now where you are wise in your years and even beyond your years and the younger generation, you're why, you know, cause well, here's what happens. If you're not investing yourself in other people, then you get into that complaining thing. 
where, where it's like, you just look at everything. Everything makes you mad. And I always think of a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says that when a hunting dog is stuck in the kennel, all he can do is complain about the fleas. But when he's on the hunt, he barely even notices them. And, and I think like if, if you're one of those people right now, you're listening, you're in that complaining place, then you're a hunting dog. You're sitting in the kennel. You're not supposed to be in the kennel. You're a hunting dog. Get on the hunt with whatever God has for you. And, and again, you'll find, talk about God's crazy plan for happiness. Our culture says, once you retire, you're going to be happy. You're not going to have to work. And you know what most people find? Listen, I'm really actually not that happy because my life lacks purpose. And in retirement, you don't have a, a, a job or a career to determine your purpose. Now you just say, Lord, what's my purpose? And, 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 and it's plugging into your local church. It's serving in your local community. It's choosing to be a mentor. I'm here to tell you as a younger person, I am so grateful for the wise mentors who have poured into my life, who are presently pouring in life, who make time for me, who reach out to me. I know the much younger generation, like, so like I'm Gen X for the millennials or Gen Z, they are craving mentors. They don't know how to ask for it. You know, I, th I tell the younger generation all the time, I say, listen, you need to learn how to ask for people's investment. It's like, I don't know. It's scared. You know, I can't text them because they don't text. It's like, well, go call them. But so weird. They don't know how to, to take that step. So I always tell the older generation, just, just go and say, Hey, listen, can I buy a cup of coffee? I'm here to tell you every young, you young, you older guys, every young guy will take a free cup of coffee from you. <laughs> you know, like they'll do it. Cause I was that guy. I had a pastor who literally was like, uh, you know, I need, I need an extra set of hands to carry stuff for the church at Costco. I'll buy a hot dog. I'm like, I'm there. Dude, I'm 22 years old, just out of college, a free meal. I'll do a lot. I'd do a lot of things for a free meal when you're that age. Mm -hmm. And he poured into my life in, in amazing ways, transformed my life. That's good, man. Uh, if you guys get a chance, get this book. It is really, really good. Crazy happy. Daniel Fusco. He needs the money. He's living up there in rainy Vancouver, Washington. I was raised in Portland. I know the feeling. <laughs> he, needs, he needs to be able to take a vacation to Phoenix or something once in a while so he can remind what the sun looks like. <laughs> Thanks, so brother. I really, I really appreciate the, uh, the time, man. It's been great. Uh, the pleasure's all mine, Ken. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.